Amen. Well, good morning, Crossroads. It is good to be here at the Northland campus. I want to welcome those of you joining us for Lupton, Thornton, online, wherever you may be as we gather together uh, to worship God through the word today. Today at Thornton campus, uh, Pastor Trevor asked a significant question during the greeting time. And the question was, what is your favorite Girl Scout cookie? All right, and so we're going to take a little survey, all three of our campuses. How many of you say that Tagalongs are the best Girl Scout cookies? Just show of hands. Yeah, like six of you. You are the special ones. Yes, you are the special. Uh, thin mints, any thin mint? Oh, look at all the thin mints. Yeah, yeah, you know what? All the other ones I don't even think are worth talking about. And so, so that's, just where we'll, that's just where we'll end that. And so, hey, if you have your Bible today, I would love for you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6. It's where we're going to be today as we continue our study through the book of Luke. If you're new with us, welcome to Crossroads Church. My name is Matt Manning. I'm the senior pastor here at Crossroads. And like I said, we are going through this series. Series, uh, this sermon series through the Gospel of Luke, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life. And as we walk through this account that Luke gives to us, uh, one of the things that we're really going through and paying special focus to is really wanting to encounter Jesus looking at who he was and who he is and what he was all about when he was on this earth. And if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, then you know that Luke, the gospel writer, is really answering one big question for us. And that one big question is this, is why did Jesus come to this earth? What was his purpose in coming into this world? What was his mission? And the good news for us is that as we've peered into the life of Jesus, that we don't, have to, we don't have to wonder why Jesus came. We don't have to sit under a tree and ponder why it is that Jesus came into this earth. That through his life and through his ministry, we see so clearly why it is that he came, in part because he told us. That he told us that the reason that he came into this earth was the way that he said it was to bring good news to the poor. That when Jesus' earthly ministry begins around the age of 30, he walks into his hometown of Nazareth, into the synagogue, to teach. And he grabs the Isaiah scroll, a book out of the Old Testament, and he begins to read from Isaiah 61 as a proclamation of what he came to do. We find these words in Luke chapter 4, and this is the way that Luke records it for us, that Jesus said these things, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To proclaim the good news to the poor of which we might ask, what does that look like? Jesus would say, it looks like this. He has sent me to proclaim liberty or forgiveness to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to bring about the year of the Lord's favor. And after he speaks these words, he rolls back up the scroll, he hands it to the attendant, all the eyes of the synagogue are upon him, marveling at him, and he says, on this day these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, who Isaiah is speaking about in Isaiah 61 is me, I'm here. 
And almost immediately, almost immediately after speaking these words at his hometown synagogue, he goes on this tour of sorts around Israel. He starts to travel around Israel, showing us exactly what it looks like to bring the good news to the poor. And almost immediately as, as Jesus begins this tour in Israel, we're introduced to the poor. The materially poor, the physically poor, the outcasts of society, those living on the fringes, the downs and outs, the sick, the ill. And time and time again, through this section of Luke, we see as society pushes away these people, pushes away the poor, Jesus draws them in. That Jesus comes alongside them and says, the good news for you is that God is, is for you. And he comes alongside them, healing them both physically and spiritually in their souls. That as Jesus continues along this tour through, through Israel, he bumps up alongside of people who, who realize that their poverty isn't material or physical, that these are people who have material possessions, that these are people who have abilities, that these are people who have things that they can offer to God, but that as they encounter Jesus and realize who it is that he is, they realize that there's a poverty about them. That their, their poverty is not materially poor, that their poverty is spiritually poor. The way that Jesus would say it is the poor in spirit. That as these people bump up next to Jesus, they realize their bankruptcy before God. And as they draw close to Jesus, he comes to them with grace and mercy, bringing them the good news that God is also for them. Healing them at a soul level, re relieving the thirst that is deep within their souls. And as Jesus is walking around during this section, as Luke gives this to us, bringing the good news to the poor, there's another group, a third group of people that he bumps up against who start to follow him. That we call these people the Pharisees, they're the religious leaders of the day. And the reason that they're following Jesus is not because they believe that they are poor and they're looking for good news, but rather they're following Jesus because they're frustrated with what, they're, what he's teaching and what he's doing, and they want him to stop. That at every point as Jesus is teaching and showing himself to be the Messiah, the Savior, the promised one of the Old Testament, at every point the Pharisees become more agitated. And all of this comes to a boiling point. If you were here last week, we, we spoke about this. Pastor Chris did a message on this. Where Jesus is, is walking one day and, and it's on the Sabbath, this holy day where, where the Jews would set aside the day of not to do any work, to just simply rest. And Jesus on the Sabbath has the audacity to come up to this man with a withered hand, a useless hand. And on the day of the Sabbath, he heals this man's hand. Now this was a big, big deal. Because in Old Testament law, if you were crippled, if you were withered, if you had, if you had a ligament or, a, or a, 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 a limb that did not work, that you were considered unclean, which meant you could not worship God. Those were the rules. Those were the laws. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes up to this man who had been unclean for his entire life, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, who knows how long, but for his entire life, he has been unclean, unable to worship God. And in this moment, Jesus heals this man's of his withered hands, and all of a sudden makes him whole, makes him clean. And for the first time in his entire life, he's able to go before God and actually worship God. And the response of the Pharisees, the response of the religious leaders of the day was not celebration and joy that this man had been made whole, but rather we're told that they were filled with fury that Jesus had 
crossed the point of no return with the religious leaders. And Luke says that they begin talking on that day what they were going to do with this Jesus. See, the Pharisees understood what Jesus was claiming, what he was all about, and what he was saying. And they stood against him. They hated it. They hated him. And in the midst of all of these stories, in the midst of this controversy during Jesus' tour through Israel, that at some point Jesus goes to prayer. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 12. Luke records it like this for us, that in these days, these days are in the midst of all of these stories, that he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. That it's in the midst of all of these stories that we've looked at the last couple of weeks, the healings, the party with the tax collectors, the, the, the fight with the Pharisees over Sabbath, that Jesus goes to this unnamed mountain to pray. And this isn't like a five-minute prayer like we're accustomed to praying, that we're told here that Jesus actually prays through the night. That we're given this moment that's revealed to us of a regular rhythm of the way that Jesus operates. That this is certainly the first time, but it will not be the last time that Jesus spends an entire night in prayer. That through his life, particularly through the accounts of the Gospels, that we will see Jesus time and time again, that as he's seeking the Father, as he needs space to discern, that he will get away, not just for moments, but entire evenings in order to pray to God. And when the morning came, it has made clear to us what this prayer was all about, what this purpose of this prayer retreat was all about, verse 13. And when day came, he called the disciples and chose from them the twelve whom he named apostles. That Jesus spends this entire night on this unnamed mountain seeking guidance from his heavenly Father in choosing the men who would ultimately walk with him. These twelve guys, this band of brothers whom we know as the disciples. And yet the fascinating thing about all of this is that Jesus doesn't just call them the disciples, but he actually gives them another title. He calls them apostles. He uses the term apostles. Now, the word apostles just literally means the sent ones. And it's a foreshadow of what these men would ultimately become. Those ones who were, who were sent out to carry on the mission of Jesus into the world. And if you've been around the church world any amount of time, then their names are familiar to you. Verse 14, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, as we read this list of names, on the surface, it is scant with detail. But don't lose sight of the greater context of what's going on here in Luke's gospel. That Luke has just given us three stories of Jesus clashing, clashing with the religious elite. Three stories of, of Jesus fighting with the Pharisees. That the first story is Jesus healing the paralytic man. Do you remember that story? That Jesus is one day teaching in this house and this group of buddies decides that, that Jesus can heal their friend. And so they climb on the roof, they tear apart the roof, they drop this guy right in front of Jesus to heal him. Jesus looks at this man who cannot walk and he says, get up off your mat and walk. And then he says, and your sins are forgiven. And in that moment, the Pharisees are like, whoa, 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 Jesus. Only God forgives sin. Then we're given the next story, that Jesus is partying with these tax collectors, these sinners, like the worst of the worst. 
And he's partying with these guys, and he has the audacity to eat and to celebrate with these guys instead of participating in the fast, which was what the Pharisees and the religious tradition said that Jesus should be doing during this day. And the Pharisees call Jesus on and say, Jesus, that this is a day that we fast. And Jesus looks at them and says, why would you fast? The bridegroom is among you. And that whole idea of bridegroom is seen throughout all of the entire of the Old Testament. And the bridegroom was this, this picture of the Savior, the Messiah, the Chosen One, who would come. And Jesus in this moment says, look, this is not a time for fasting. This is a time of celebration because the one you've been waiting on is in your presence. And in that moment, the Pharisees are like, oh, 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 Jesus. And then we get to the third story. The story of, of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees come up to Jesus after the healing and they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, don't you know that the Sabbath is a holy day? On the Sabbath we don't do any work and you've just broken the Sabbath. And Jesus' response to them is, look boys, you're talking to the Lord of the Sabbath. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. God is the Lord of the Sabbath. And time and time again, we see the Pharisees holding Jesus at arm's length, refusing to believe who he is, who he is. And it's on the heels of this story, of these stories, that Luke tells us the story of Jesus choosing the disciples. This is not by accident. That Luke is setting up a contrast here, that he wants us to see something here. He's setting up this contrast between the Pharisees who hold Jesus at arm's length and the disciples who, who willingly draw near to him. That, that Luke wants us to see and to understand something here. He, he wants us to see. And in order for us to see what Luke wants us to see, we need to understand the culture of Judaism during this time. There's a man named Ray Vanderlaan. If you're taking notes, write that name down. Ray Vanderlaan, L-A-A-N for his last name. Ray Vanderlaan is a scholar that has done extensive study on first century Judaism, particularly when it comes to Jewish edu education and what it means to be a disciple. And his study helps us in understanding what is happening here and it helps us to discover what it is that Luke wants us to see. See, most all of Judaism is based on the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That those first five books are written by a guy named Moses. Now Moses is like the big dog of, of Old Testament scripture. That Moses is the first prophet of God, that he has this high standing in Jewish culture. And the Jews believed, they actually believed, and we believe too, that God spoke to Moses and gave him the first five books of the Bible. Now, in Judaism, these first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. And the Torah just means the instruction or the way. That's what Torah means. And for first century Jews, and even for Jews today, Torah is everything. Torah is foundational. Torah is central. And so it makes sense that even when it comes to their kids' education, that everything revolved around the Torah. And when it came to Jew Judaism education, particularly around the Torah, it just wasn't knowledge-based, but it was also character development. It was about knowledge and developing character. And so for a typical Jewish kid, both boys and girls, that are at around the age of six or so, that they would go to what was called Beit Sefer. Beit Sefer. And you can think of Beit Sefer like Torah elementary school. That your kids would go there from age 6 to around age 12. And at Beit Sefer, most kids would memorize the entire Torah. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's about 200 pages in my Bible. Pretty remarkable. Now, during this time, the boys would also begin to learn the art of of oral discourse, of oral arguments. And the way that this would work is that the teacher would come to the boys, and they would, they would ask the boys questions. And the, and the boys would respond to the question, not with just simply an answer, but with another question, in order to show the rabbi that he truly understood and was processing the Torah. Remember, that education wasn't just simply knowledge, but it was, it was development of character. Do you, can you process the Torah? Do you understand it? Can you apply it to our lives? And so they would be taught the art of really oral discord, of oral argument, in order of and to be able to answer questions. We see a glimpse of this actually in Jesus' life. Do you remember Luke chapter 2? That Jesus' parents take off, they leave him at the temple on accident, right? And he's sitting there, and when they come back, what's Jesus doing? He's asking questions. They're, they're in this oral discourse with the religious leaders. And we're told that the religious leaders are amazed at Jesus' ability to process and understand the Torah. At the end of Beit Sefar... Most kids would be done with their education. For their boys, they would have this celebration around the age of 13 called the bar mitzvah where they would become a man. No longer would they be considered boys in culture, but now they were men. And for many of them, for many of them, their education was done and they would become apprentices in the family trade. They would become carpenters and stonemasons, shepherds, farmers, uh, bakers, and so on. But the truly gifted, the truly gifted of the class would keep going in their education that they would continue their education in something called Beit Talmud, Beit Talmud. And Beit Talmud was from the age of 12 to 13 to about the age of 15. And during Beit Talmud, what the kids would learn is the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, that they would learn the prophets and the Psalms, and they would go through the history books. And in fact, if you were one of the best and the brightest, by the age of 15, you would have the entire Old Testament memorized. All of it. All of it. And if you were one of those, the brightest, you would continue your education in something that was called Beit Midrash. That at the age of 15, during Beit Midrash, the boys would go to a rabbi and they would apply to be their Talmids. Now, Talmid is just the word that they would use for disciple or learner. Now, as we think about this, it's very easy for us to apply our understanding of Western learning on top of what it meant to be a disciple or a learner of a rabbi. But don't do that. Don't do that. See, in fact, our taking of our culture and the way that we learn in our culture and applying it to the scriptures has caused a deep misunderstanding in what it means to be a disciple and what it means to be, uh, to be in discipleship. See, to become a disciple in Judaism meant that you wanted to become your rabbi. It wasn't that you just wanted to learn from your rabbi all the things that he knew, but that you actually wanted to become your rabbi. That's what it meant. Live the way that he lived. Relate to God the way that he related to God. Understand the Torah the way that he understood the Torah. And so the way that this would work is that you would, at 15 years old, that you would go to a rabbi and you would ask if you could be his Talmud. And the rabbi then would, would hammer you with questions to see if you had what it took to be one of his disciples. And after this series of, of questions and answers to see if you had what it took, most, significantly, most of the boys, most of the boys, the rabbis would look at and they would go, you know what? You've made it this far in your education. You're one of the brightest. It's obviously that you love God and that you love Torah, but you don't have what it takes 
to be my Talmud. Go learn the family business. For most boys, that's the way it went. But for a very select few, the rabbis would look at them and they would say, follow me. Follow me. And at 15 years old, the boy would leave home and he would devote the rest of his life to live as a disciple of his rabbi. It was the most honorable vocation that anyone could have in Jewish culture. Now most of the disciples would eventually become rabbis around the age of 30. And at age of 30, they would go out and they would begin to find their own Talmuds, their own 14, 15-year-old boys that they could begin to disciple. So back to Jesus. When Jesus is around 30 years old, his ministry begins. Luke tells us that he walks out of the wilderness full of the Spirit and he begins to go to synagogue to synagogue in northern Israel, in which we call Galilee. And as he enters into the synagogue, the people are amazed because they've never heard any rabbi speak of God the way that Jesus speaks of God. They've never seen a rabbi relate to God the way that Jesus relates to God. Eventually, he makes it to his hometown of Nazareth and he declares for everyone to hear that his mission is to bring the good news to the poor. And almost immediately, he calls out to Simon, John, and James to follow me. And when he does this, what are they doing? Come on, come on. What are they doing? They're fishing. Which means what? It means they're not following anybody. It means they weren't good enough. They're doing the family trade. And when Jesus calls out to Levi, what's Levi doing? He's a tax collector, isn't he? Which means what? He's not following anybody. He wasn't good enough. And so far that he wasn't good enough that he actually turned to modern-day organized crime to make a living. That as we read through this list, we see name after name after name of people who weren't following anybody. That they weren't good enough to be Talmuds. They didn't have what it took. That they were, that they were doing the family trade. That these weren't the A-team. These were not drawn from the rising stars of Jerusalem. This isn't the who's who's of first century Judaism. That when God came into this world as flesh and called his disciples, he did not call the religious elite. He did not call the Pharisees. He did not call the special ones. He called the plain, the simple, the not good enough people who had been passed over in this life. He called the poor. And so when Jesus says, follow me, these guys, they drop everything. And they begin to follow Jesus. And we look at these with our modern eyes and we go, who does that? Like, like who leaves a vocation? Who leaves a job where they're making money and a good living and drops everything just to follow a guy around? And yet we have to remember that the rabbis were the most honorable, the most honorable in all of Jewish culture. And it was every boy, every man's dream to be a Talmud, to be a disciple of a rabbi. And so Jesus walks up to these guys and he says, follow me. And what he's saying to them is that I believe you're good enough. I believe you have what it takes. That you can do what I do. That you can relate to God the way that I relate to God. That you can understand the scriptures the way that I understand the scriptures. And so we watch the disciples as the gospels begin to play out. And one day they're walking with Jesus and they've been watching Jesus for a while. And they see Jesus pray the way that he prays. And they go, Jesus, would you teach us to pray the way that you pray? Would you teach us to, to relate to God the way that you relate to God? 
In another story, Jesus sends out these disciples two by two. You remember this? He sends them out two by two, and they teach like Jesus teaches. And, they, and they're casting out demons, and they're healing people, and they come back, and they're high-fiving because they're doing what Jesus is doing. And we have a story of where Peter, he jumps out of a boat thinking he can walk on water. Why? Because Jesus is walking on water. And we get to Pentecost in Acts, the day of Pentecost, and we see these disciples stand up and they teach and they preach with the power and the authority that Jesus spoke with. And 3,000 people on that day fall to their knees professing Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Follow me. Live the way that I live. Relate to God the way that I relate to God. Understand the scriptures the way I understand the scriptures. Follow me. And when we read this list, we see that Jesus calls 12 disciples to follow me. This number is not a coincidence. There's something bigger here. Jesus is starting something new. Not only does he look at these disciples and say that I believe that you have what it takes, that I believe that you're good enough, but he looks at them and he says, we're going to start something new. You're special. You're special. That these 12, that this number 12 is very intentional. It represents the 12 tribes of Israel in a new way. That Jesus, in choosing his disciples, is setting up what we call true Israel. We call it the church. And the church is not a building, but rather a movement of people who have said yes to following Jesus. See, the way that Jesus understands the Hebrew scriptures is what we call through covenants. Covenants are these promises that were made by God to the Old Testament, or in the Old Testament, to his people, Israel. If you remember from Luke chapter 3, we walked through these covenants, and there's six main covenants. There's the creation covenant, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and what we call the new covenant. These six covenants make up the backbone of all of Scripture. And what Jesus does time and time again is show through the Gospels that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants and that God has always been at work to bring about the salvation of his people. See, there is one great work of salvation, and that is through the cross of Jesus, where Jesus died on the cross to remove the hostility between both man and Jew, and I'm sorry, God and Jew, and God and Gentile. That sometimes when we are reading the Scripture. That we think of like there's two people, two groups of people, and two ways to heaven, right? Like you have the Jews and the Gentiles, and both have their own ways to heaven. That is not the way that we're to read the scriptures. That there is one way to be reconciled to God, and that is through the cross of Jesus. And let me tell you, it was this. Jesus' understanding of the Hebrew scriptures that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, lost their minds over. It's why they would not follow him that they could not reconcile in their minds, that God chose Israel to be the fullness of his glory, and yet now promises that that glory to the church and to true Israel. See, Jesus is the point of redemptive history where, where the church, where true Israel becomes the church, and the church, both Jew and Gentile, becomes true Israel. It's this understanding that makes everything else start to be clear, become clear for us. That just in a few chapters, Luke is going to begin a narrative for us where Jesus is on this exodus journey. Just like the people of Israel were on their exodus journey. And that Jesus' exodus journey is going to end up at the cross 
where he will be able to free the slaves from their bondage, just like Israel ultimately found their freedom from their bondage. It's why in the, in the end of scriptures, in Revelation, that, that the way that heaven is described to us is as the new Jerusalem, the new Israel that comes down. It makes sense of, of Matthew chapter 19 or 20, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, 19 is where it's at. Where Jesus is, is in this moment with the rich young ruler. And he has this conversation with this man who, who wants to follow him. And Jesus says, this is what it looks like to follow me. And the rich young ruler decides that he can't do it. And he walks away. And Peter's response, do you remember Peter's response? Peter's response in that moment is, if that man can't make it into heaven, what chance do any of us have? He's rich. He's elite. He's special. If he can't get into heaven, how can any of us get into heaven? And Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, Peter, you're still missing it. I came to bring good news to the poor. And Peter's response is, Jesus, we've lost, we have left everything to follow you. We've left everything to follow you. What does it look like for us? And Jesus goes, that there's going to be a time when you are in eternity with me. And I'm going to be sitting on my glorious throne and my disciples, you 12, are going to be sitting on your thrones as the judges of Israel. See, it's this understanding that begins to make all of Jesus' life and all of the New Testament so clear to us. And Jesus sets that all up right here with these plain, simple, not good enough guys who he comes to and says, would you follow me? Would you live the way that I live? Would you relate to God the way that I relate to God? Would you understand the scriptures the way that I understand the scriptures? Follow me. And for 11 of the 12 of these guys, they would choose to follow Jesus their entire lives. And yet it's that one separated person, Judas Iscariot's, the one who became a traitor that makes this list so relevant for us today. It's as if, if Luke is looking at us and saying, you have the same choice to make. Will you say yes to Jesus' call to follow me all of your life, faithful to the end, whatever the cost, or are you going to go out like Judas, prematurely, tragically, shamefully? For 11 of these 12 disciples, we have an amazing picture of what Jesus does with the plain, simple, not good enough people who say yes to following him. That as the New Testament plays out, we, we see these disciples become just like the rabbi. Teaching and preaching, they plant churches, they heal, they cast out demons, they set the world on fire for Jesus. And we see their faithfulness all the way to their death each one of them dying just like their rabbi did for the thing in which they believed. James, the brother of John, beheaded, martyred for his faith. James, the son of Alphaeus, beheaded, martyred for his faith. Thomas, killed in India, martyred for his faith. Simon, the zealot, crucified in Egypt, martyred for his faith. Bartholomew, beaten, crucified, and if that wasn't enough, beheaded for his faith. Andrew, Peter's brother, crucified. Andrew's story is so remarkable that upon his death, as he's at his trial, it was asked of Andrew 
that if you knew that you were going to be crucified, would you renounce Jesus and put all of this Christianity thing aside? And Andrew replied with these words, I would have not preached the honor and glory of the cross if I feared the death of the cross. And as Andrew was led towards the place of his execution, he said, O cross, most welcomed and longed for, with a willing mind, joyfully and desirously, I come to you, being the disciple of him which did hang on you, because I have always been your lover and yearn to embrace you. May we all be a little bit more like Andrew. Matthew, the tax collector, the crook, assassinated with a spear, martyred for his faith. Philip, stoned and then crucified, martyred for his faith. Peter, crucified upside down at his trial. When he found out he was being crucified, he said defiantly that I am not worthy to die in the same manner of my Lord. And so they crucified him upside down, burning him at the stake. John, boiled alive. And when that didn't kill him, they exiled him until his death. That in the end, the disciples became just like their rabbi. Dying because they believed that the spirit of the Lord was upon Jesus. That he was the anointed one proclaimed to bring the good news to the poor. The good news of life everlasting. That Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, said that when Christ, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and to die. The way that Jesus said it is to pick up your cross and follow me daily. That's what it means to be a Talmud. That's what it means to be a disciple. That you go the way of Jesus. That you give your life for what he gave his life for. The glory of God and the good of others. And so here we stand. With Jesus some 2,000 years later beckoning in us. Will you follow me? Follow me all you who are thirsty. Follow me all you who are weak. Follow me, all you who are plain and simple. Follow me, all you who are not good enough. Follow me, all you who are poor. Come to the fountain and dip your hearts in the stream of life. That you can say yes today to Jesus by confessing that he is Lord of your life. Believing that he came into this world, died on the cross, dying for your sins on that cross. Raising three days later, proclaiming he is who he says he is. Offering you the abundant life. And Jesus is looking at you today, just like he did his disciples some 2,000 years ago. And he looks at you and he says, follow me. I believe that you're good enough. I believe you can do what I do. I believe that you can relate to God the way that I can relate to God. I believe that you can understand scriptures the way that I understand scriptures. Follow me. Let's pray. Father, we come into these spaces and, Lord, in some ways we are awed by these 12 men. Lord, what their lives became, what they died for. And Lord, there's a peace in, in all of us that, that wants that kind of conviction, that wants that kind of passion in our own lives. And yet the reality is that when we look at them, we realize that they are not much different than us, simply plain and simple people. Lord, who the world has told, you're not really good enough. 
And Lord, at some level, that is the story of every single one of our lives. And yet you come alongside us and, and you say, no, 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 no. <laughs> you are good enough. You can do what I do. You can see and relate to God the way that I relate to God. And, and, and Lord, we want that. We want that. And so, Lord, I know that there are many in our spaces today across all of our three campuses who have said yes to following you. Lord, may we follow you with the passion and the devotion that the disciples followed you with. Lord, may we have the faithfulness, Lord, of the 11. And Lord, remind us constantly of the one who chose to walk away from you. Lord, we don't want to be that person. And so, Lord, I know that there are those in our room today, Lord, who have never said yes to following you, who have never believed that they were good enough, who never believed that they could do what you do. And, Lord, today they may see you for the first time ever in, in who you really are. And you're calling to them, follow me. Be my Talmud. Be my disciple. God, the choice is ours. Lord, may we faithfully follow you. All of God's people said, amen. Awesome. Thanks, Pastor Matt. Ooh, that's hot.